and you know, one of my management mantras is, you know, hire good, sleep well. You know, if, if you can hire good people and the right people in the right spots, um, you can overcome whatever challenges, unforeseen challenges, seen challenges. You know, if you have a motivated, capable group, you're gonna be able to accomplish some pretty amazing things and they're gonna make you look good in, in the process. And I think that's one thing we focused on was bringing really good talent in, into Talisman and, and uh, built a really great supply chain organization. The Highly Capable Podcast by Galtway Industries is the premier podcast for firsthand accounts of the manufacturing and supply chain spaces told by highly capable, accomplished, and proficient people. Exploring all types of personalities and industries, our goal is to highlight the people who have risen to the top of their space and try to identify what sets them apart. If you have any questions, nominations, or suggestions, please reach out to us on the Highly Capable Podcast page on LinkedIn or at podcast at galtwayindustries.com. And we're back with the Highly Capable Podcast in Houston, Texas, in the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio, um, in the Upright Digital Office. It's been a while. I, I, I'm sure we have lots of listeners that have been sitting in the edge of their seat waiting for the next episode to drop. Uh, we did take a little hiatus to kind of retool some things. And in the meantime, um, I met Keith Chemetsky, who is sitting across from me right now. But also, supply chain has become the most popular topic. My neighbors all talk about supply chain. My <laughs> friends talk about it. And all the while, we had a little supply chain podcast here. So uh, what better way? And I, so everybody, welcome, Keith. Hey, happy to be here, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for helping me out here. I need all the, all the horses I can get behind this buggy. Let's see if we can find some more horses. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just so everybody, I think everybody's tired of hearing me talk. So okay. I'm gonna, I'll take a side seat on this one, but let, maybe tell everybody who you are, where you come from, sure. what you love about me, that kind of stuff, <laughs> right? Well, as many glowing uh, <laughs> superlatives as I can come up with. So yeah, so Keith Chemetsky, I'm currently the president of MS Directional, which is Patterson UTI uh, owned company. So I've been in the oil and gas industry ever since uh, you know, I could walk, really. I grew up overseas. My old man was in the uh, was in the business, uh, worked for one of the suppliers in Southeast Asia, spent uh, my entire life in Singapore. Uh, fantastic uh, experience growing up over there. And then when it came time to go to school, I, uh, I, di I did what everybody should do, right? Uh, turn around and find a place where my parents were far, far away, and I thought I could have a great time. So that took me to uh, Purdue and West Lafayette, Indiana. I had a great time up there and uh, realized real quickly that uh, oil and gas was still my calling. So as soon as, uh, as, soon as I could find my way out of uh, the Midwest, started driving south with my arm out the window until I found some heat. Landed here in Houston, Texas. <laughs> and then uh, kept driving a little right, bit. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, this summer's been uh, one for the ages, right? Yeah. But yeah, so, um, you know, you know started, uh, started on the equipment side, you know, worked for one of the biggest equipment suppliers in the uh, in the industry, then went to the operators, uh, one, you know, Fortune 10, and then uh, a couple of independents, uh, and then now working for, uh, you know, the biggest uh, laying contractor in uh, one of the biggest in the nation. So it's been a, uh, been a fun ride and, and get to see a lot of things all through all through sales and supply chain operations. Uh, the last 10 years, 12, shoot more than that, 15 years now in supply chain, uh, structuring deals for operators and, and then for service companies. And uh, man, I'll tell you what, it's been a fun ride. I mean, it, it's it's wild to see the evolution. I think uh, with our guest today, we're gonna have a long conversation around the evolution of supply chain with the industry as well. So, so actually, I think we'll just ask our guests to leave. You have plenty to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a... Uh, I'm going to squeeze you for maybe we'll get another episode just the, the Keith story. That'd be good. It's actually nice to have an expert here in the room too, 
the, the, uh, besides the downside our guest. is if we exit my our guest, who was my old boss. I don't know how that goes well. <laughs> that goes later either. Just so. trying to save some content for <laughs> yeah, later, right? Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, no, thanks for thanks for helping me out here. Uh, it's it was good to meet you a while back. Yeah, I think it's a great fit. Um, we've I think got be a lot, lot of fun. Got a lot of ground to cover. Absolutely, some season. interesting folks on the docket. So. So be good. Our, uh, our first interesting folk here, this is, uh, you've known him for a while. You want to do the introduction in this case? Yeah. So uh, roughly, roughly 12 years ago, I got a phone call about a potential role up in, uh, in Calgary. And, and I'm Canadian originally. So was, were you uh, born in Canada? I was born in Canada, grew up overseas, came to the States, came to Texas as fast as I could. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> okay. So true story, um, the, I, I was flown up there on uh, the opening day of the Stampede and Calgary, Calgary. Stampede. Yeah. So if, if anybody's been to the Calgary Stampede, I mean, downtown is a madhouse, right? I mean, roads are closed. I mean, there's people everywhere. I get an invite, and the um, the in, the uh, interview is going to take place at the headquarters of this building, which is right on the parade route. Guess where my cab can't get me to? <laughs> so I left here at 5 o'clock, left Houston at 5 o'clock in the morning, fly up there, can't get my way to the uh, – uh, to the office. I go through the plus 15, which is a series of mazes effectively uh, through the downtown corridor so you can dodge the cold in the winter. And uh, that's where I met Brian for the first time. And, and we'd, uh, you know, we hit it off pretty well, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, clearly, I was foolish enough for him to get excited about hiring me. Uh, and then we worked together for, uh, for a good almost five years and had a lot of fun. We, uh, we went through a, a series of transformational events, did some really, really cool deals. The industry was at a was at a really fun spot back then too. Uh, just the amount of investment, candidly over investment, which led to some challenges later. But the amount of investment, the uh, the focus on trying to develop what is what is now known as unconventional resource was uh, was highly the focus of this operator. And we, we had a lot of fun from there. So Brian was uh, at the time the head of the VP of uh, North America Supply Chain. Ultimately, became the vice president of global supply chain uh, for uh, said operator, and here we are. So quick it, shout out to Calgary before we move on. We do have listeners up there in uh, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, Alberta. Love that that part of the man. The world. It's uh, it's God's country up there. It is great. Absolutely. So, Brian Smith, nice to meet you. Thank you very much, guys, for letting me be here. And just on the Calgary shout-out as well is I've had the opportunity to live in, in a few countries, Brazil, in, in Rio de Janeiro, in Madrid, Spain. And uh, if I ask my kids where they would go on vacation, Calgary is always the top spot they want to <laughs> go to. Easily. And more specifically, Chauvin, which is just north of Calgary, which uh, <laughs> they get there and ride four-wheelers and – shoot some guns and catch some go. fish, stuff like that. So like little Texas up there. It's oh, exactly. It's Except for the sun sets like 11 o'clock at night sometimes, right. which I found yeah. strange. But, but conversely, 4 p.m. in the afternoon yeah. is in the, in winter, the winter, winter time. time. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Um, like, like I was mentioning earlier, I, I'd love to find out how you got to this seat. So I'm going to let you start off wherever you think is, is the most interesting, and I'll probably interrupt you, and I'm, I apologize in advance there. No problem. <laughs> thanks, Frank. Yeah, you know – we we're talking about it, and I think that people of my vintage, there's usually a winding path on how they became in supply chain, which until the last couple of years, no one ever talked about supply chain, really. Nobody cared until they no. couldn't get toilet paper. Exactly, there you right. go. And baby food and everything else, formula. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I, I started off as a undeclared ma a major in college, and I came from a, a blue collar uh, family. Well, my dad was actually a Baptist preacher and uh, really didn't have exposure to professionals going to college. So I went in as undeclared and pretty quickly found out it felt like grade 13 that we were just, you know, classes were pretty easy. And I was paying for my own school, so I was looking to get the most bang out of my buck in school. So I said, well, what would give me that most bang? So I just studied chemistry. 
just went for the right for the hardest one. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Let's dive head first. Right? <laughs> Let's go. Chemistry is where I found out I wasn't going to be an engineer. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so, you know, came out as a chemist, um, which was uh, way harder than I thought it was going to be. So I got my money's worth, but I came out as a chemist working for Corning. Okay. Um, and so worked as a chemist uh, there for five years. And uh, after five years, got kind of tired of the, of the laboratory and getting acid burns and everything I worked with said that your kids will have three arms and a few extra <laughs> yeah. eyes. But so I decided I, w- I would do a solo trip around the world and, and do some traveling, you know, kind of sell my oats a little bit. And so uh, anyway, I, I was doing this trip around the world and I was on this Indonesian island and I ran into these four guys who had just graduated f- from the University of Chicago MBA program. Well, hang on, you skipped half the globe. You're on the other side now. <laughs> oh yeah. In <laughs> Indonesia. You're halfway across your trip already, I guess. Oh yeah, so went through Europe, through India, through uh, through Asia. How long were you doing this sabbatical, I guess? For seven months. So that's a good trip. That's yeah. a great yeah, trip. Can't wait. Yeah, so uh, so anyways, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm on this remote island, I'm on a beach, and I met these four guys who were clearly Americans, and uh, so we started talking, I was by myself, and they invited me to join them in traveling, and so over a week at time, I spent, you know, traveling with these guys. And these guys told me about the jobs they had come from, which were mostly technical engineers, and they were going into these fancy uh, finance jobs, you know, making a ton of money. And I'm like, holy cow, these guys can make it <laughs> in a top MBA program. You know, I've got Sign a shot. Me up. Let's I've go. got yeah. a shot. <laughs> and so, trip. exactly, right? <laughs> and, you know, I would say that this interaction, I guess, is one of the m- first of many kind of unplanned um, encounters that really opens the doors up for what's possible. And I think that's that's one thing I, I would really enforce is that, you know, it's how do you create this space for for unplanned encounters um, because you never know what's gonna happen. And I think there's actually a problem we have with kind of the stay at home workforce we have today mm-hmm. is that uh, you don't you know, you don't have a chance to have these, in, these unplanned engagements. It's super efficient. You can go and have, burn through a bunch of meetings, skip the traffic jams, but especially if you're a young professional, like yep. having these unplanned things that just opens up your eyes to space you had no idea even existed before. Isn't that what they say? Luck is when opportunity meets preparation. That's kind of, you know, when the opportunity yep. comes. The Venn diagram crosses. You have to actually have opportunities for this thing to happen. Right. So. And it's these epiphany moments. I mean, you're completely in the dark. You know, like, you know, I was working at a Fortune 500 company, Corning, big company, uh, but I was buried in a business unit. And nobody in this business unit thought about getting MBAs or leaving a good paying job to go back to school. Right. And so really, uh, it wasn't even on the radar screen at all. And but by doing this other thing, by traveling and being on this remote island, Indonesia, meeting these guys, you know, just kind of opened the doors up. And I'll share, you know, another quick story. Uh, that kind of same thing was uh, Keith and I were working in Calgary, um, you know, for Talisman Energy. And uh, we were running out of space. We we're growing like crazy. And so they have two towers there. And so they they decided to put the operations in one group of towers, in the functions in another group Mm -hmm. of towers. And it was amazing, just in a matter of uh, just a few months, just your lack of connection with the business guys, how you quickly became a function rather than a partner in the business. Literal silos. Right. Literal silos. Yeah. Wh- which sound not very difficult, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, all you got to do is take an elevator and walk across and take an elevator. But yeah. it might as well have been on the other side of town. Yeah. I mean, or, or non-existent. I'm, well before teams, too. Exactly. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, and you're not picking up the, the good phone. Old days. It's just so weird, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally agree. And you felt that, Keith. I mean, right. you know, Keith was in charge of category management at the time. Yep. And so his, his job was to engage with these guys on and get these guys to think differently uh, but from a procurement perspective and right. supply chain. So 
yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, so I think, you know, I'd encourage people to find ways to, uh, you know, step out of your box and, and, and connect in unexpected ways, I right. guess. So you, you, all right, so let me, sorry, let me back up. So you're beach in Indonesia, yeah. meet some guys, decide MBA is a good future, and you go through that program, I'm guessing, and where does that take you? Great, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, come back from my trip, and decide I'm gonna get my MBA, which you gotta go through a series of tests and applications. It's not, it's not a fun process, but I go through this. It takes me a couple of years to do that. In the meantime, I said, well, a trip around the world was a pretty good gig. So I said, ah, I might as well do a, tr a trip for one year through South America before yeah. I get a real job. <laughs> Why not? Right. Uh, and go through the MBA experience. And so uh, I did that, landed in Mexico, traveled down through you know, South America, down to the tip, and then back up to Venezuela, came back, went to business school. I'm jealous just hearing about that. <laughs> it's yeah, pretty good great. gig, but um, pre-marriage, pre pre-kids. Yeah. It's amazing what you can do. <laughs> you <have> no <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, you know, came back, went to business school, got a degree in finance, uh, came out, and I was working in the um, energy trading space, which sounded pretty sexy at the time. It was a big space at the time, evolving space. I would say it's a bit like Bitcoin today. Mm -hmm. Like this is, the, it was the space to be in, to make a lot of money, it was evolving. Enron was leading the charge, you know, guys driving Ferraris yep. and, and these kind of things. And so I thought I'd land it, it's perfect. So I literally had one gig under my belt and then the Enron collapse happened. And there <laughs> went the complete energy trading market, went to shreds and there was no work out there for anybody. So I was sitting, I had my desk waiting, uh, you thinking what am I gonna do next? And a partner from the energy practice came up to me and said, hey, Brian, we got this procurement project, this transformation project that we're gonna do for a major oil and gas company. You know, we're looking to staff it. You know, once you join the team. Okay, sure. I know nothing about procurement. Like literally, like I've done a couple of POs as a chemist or as a manager in the past, but. What are you allowed to say what companies these were? Uh, so yeah. I was looking for PricewaterhouseCoopers as a consulting firm. PwC, okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so the company was was Texaco was was a company that I was gonna which is no longer yep. in business. But uh, so, so anyways, um, you know, joined this team of some very capable consultants. I mean, fantastic. Would you say they're highly capable? Highly capable. capable? <laughs> it depends what the bar is on highly capable. But uh, yeah, these guys were. I'm here, so it's pretty low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just drop, just kind of walk right over. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> Ankle height. You know. I, yeah, and, and so, you know, I call these guys, you know, professors in life or, you know, getting your second MBA. I mean, these guys are really the guys that teach you how a, a career is built and, right. and, and how things really run. And so I, I was blessed to be on this fantastic team with a great client. Uh, but, you know, this was that time when procurement in the oil and gas space was quite, you know, rudimentary. And, um, you know. What do you mean by Can you elaborate on that? I mean, yes. rudimentary is, are we talking? So on what scale? Yeah, so I would say on a scale of one to ten, ten being good, one being bad, it's probably pushing one yeah. at, at, or, at or nearing zero as compared to where we are today. And actually, procurement was viewed as a as a roadblock to the business. And you know, as an example, this company that we we started out working for, procurement's role was in part tracking inventory and you know supplies. And if you needed a new number two pencil, you had to go to procurement with your old pencil and they would measure it to make sure it was short enough for you to get a new pencil. Wow, and that sounds so, really efficient. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, spending billions of dollars, yeah. and let's focus on a number two this pencil, This is a right? value add situation, right. right? Yeah, so you know, imagine our job is to go in and transform. You know, first of all, the, 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 the you know, hurdle's pretty small to transform into something better, but what executives are thinking are going from this basically a non-value 
uh, kind of audit based function to, you know, this function that's going to produce, <coughs> you know, six to 8% of value to the business every year. I'm trying to wrap my head around why. I mean, I guess what they, somebody somewhere said we're using 10,000 number two pencils a year. We got to get that down to eight or, you know, what, 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 what are we doing here, right? Yeah, well, I think it's a good correlation to where we are today in, in or the last couple of years is that, you know, oil prices were quite low at the time. Uh, people right, were just scraping right. by, yeah. you know, functions really were trying to find a way to add value. I'm sure somebody looked at the G&A office supplies, thought that was a big spin item and said, okay, cut you that. know, yeah, right. find a way to cut that. Well, and I think actually a little bit further, right? If you go further back, I think a lot of the professionals that landed in procurement at the time, I think a lot of them were guys that, guys and gals that didn't cut it in other roles, right? There were other engineers that didn't make it or they were, uh, you know, finance folks that maybe there was a there was a different path for them. Kind of catch-all bucket. It, it, yeah, and they were good people. That's, that's not taking away from them professionally as much as, you know, not necessarily were they adding the most value? No, because if, if they were really good at their jobs and, you know, mechanical engineering, would you land it in a procurement? Right. No, I right. mean, it, that was just not a normal path, call it 25, 30 years ago. Whereas, you know, I think when you go back 20 years ago, you know, when, when Brian's, the time period Brian's alluded to, that really was where, okay, you've got these mega mergers, right? Where mm-hmm. you have to strip out cost, where is the most value to be found? Uh, you have to strip out cost to, to uh, afford the transaction. Uh, where's the value found? So the biggest spend areas. And that's yeah. where I think it started to evolve, really. All the checks it was almost leaving. a catalyst, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, it was a catalyst to we've got to stop focusing on number two pencils and start focusing on drilling rigs, on directional mm-hmm. drilling, on frack crews, pick one. But yeah. I, I think that's kind of the world you lived, right? I think people outside of oil and gas really set the stage for what could happen. You saw Lou Gerstner from IBM, the CEO at the time, who was in a cost turnaround mode. And he really used procurement as a, as a lever to right. really bring back the profitability of the business. And so I think at the time, oil and gas was studying what was happening outside of oil and gas and saying, wow, this is so much like our industry. How really? do we do that? And so that, that set the stage for these transformations that happen across the majors, first of all, and then kind of cascaded downward. But to build on, on, Keith's, uh, on, on, on Keith's example of people who are non-supply chain professionals is uh, the CEO actually had an an advisor that he liked and trusted a lot. And so he went and asked this guy if he would take over, you know, a manager role as the head of uh, strategic sourcing. So when the CEO asks you a question like that, you gotta take it kind of seriously, but internally he was like quite upset about it. And, right. he, and he came to us and he said, look guys, you guys are leading this transformation, but the CEO's asking me to work in strategic sourcing. He said, listen, if you don't do good in the operations, you go to HSE. Yeah. And if you really screw up an HSE, <laughs> then they send you to you know to procurement. And <laughs> so I'm, I'm skipping I'm skipping HSE and going right to procurement. So what's the CEO telling me? Right? Yeah, yeah. You got to bail me out here. <laughs> so <laughs> you guys you look good. Put me back yeah. in the right line here, fellas. Tell me what's going to, on yeah, with HSE. this. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, so. I mean that wasn't that long ago. I mean 25 right. years ago is uh, you know you think about where we are today in supply chain in the oil and gas space, and it's uh, I think it's quite well respected value add. But mm-hmm. I think people have to understand the roots. Of procurement and, and supply chain. So let me let me bring it back again. So we we went through South America. We we now we, we're transforming a supply chain and uh, I guess that was a pipeline company, right? Or energy, uh, and then that that where'd you go from there, right? How did yeah. 
So, I, you know, I was uh, consulting, spending a lot of time on the road, getting a plane uh, every Monday. So you got into consulting back. from there? Yeah, so, okay. so I was a consultant. Like coming out of business school, okay. I was uh, energy trading consulting. Gotcha, gotcha. That went bust pretty quick. Then I was uh, asked uh, uh, to be working the supply chain practice, uh, or the gas, but doing you know supply chain uh, projects for PricewaterhouseCoopers across. And so I worked across most of the majors, BP, Shell, Chevron, uh, Texaco. So um, little mom and pops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know th that was fantastic because you see a lot of different cultures in play. You realize what works, what doesn't work, and you realize at the end of the day, culture has such a huge impact on what you can actually do, what yep. you can propose, your leadership style, and what works for you. Like uh, companies that you would be great at, you know, someone else who comes at things differently would would suck there because this, the culture doesn't support the way they do business. Right. So it's great kind of uh, a petri dish to understand, you know, basics of business, understand the oil and gas business. Uh, but I was on the road quite a bit for, you know, six, seven years traveling every week, doing a lot of international stuff. And so I had kids, my wife's looking at me, you know. It's not so cool anymore, yeah. <laughs> I think she was tempted to, to, to pull a, a page out of my friend's playbook who, who had his, his wife show up at the airport with his kids with name tags on his kids. Mm. <laughs> Mm. Uh, as, a, as a hint that, hey, you spend too much time on the road, <laughs> you, know, you might forget your kids' names. You know, I, 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 I have young kids, right? So I, I've always traveled for, for work, and you know, my wife never really loved it, but kids had a different dynamic. Yeah. I, so I'm, I've got a little one-year-old and a three-year-old, and, and it, uh, you know, not just is it, it's hard in the home, right? But also there's always that, you know, seven o'clock, you're rolling into this strange hotel right. and you're sitting there on the bed and, you know, you're like, what, what's, what am I doing? What am here? I doing here? Yeah. Right. Yep. Is it's this all where glamorous. I want to be? Yeah, like, I know why I'm doing it, but yeah. it hurts, right? It's all glamorous when you tell your parents about your travel and so until yeah. you, you hit the hotel bed at seven o'clock, you know, and you know, you're like, I guess I'll crush a hundred emails here, but, and you know, honestly, that's, so I, I don't, you know, I do a little bit of social media, but not a lot. But, you know, I would travel and it was usually new cities I was going to and I'd post, you know, the cool meal I had or whatever. But, you know, what that does is it shows nothing but highlights and people right. don't see that seven o'clock hotel or yep. waking up at 4 a.m. to go get in a TSA line. And like that, it's a grind. It really but, and that highlight is a moment. It's, right? a, it's, mean, it's 15 a, minutes. Maybe. 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 You're walking through a cool lobby on your way yep. to that lonely desk. Yeah, you know? travel it's, delays. It's oh, a whole God. thing. So yeah, I can totally appreciate that. And I hope everybody out there <laughs> gets to experience that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's that loneliness. Cruel. That's cruel, by the That's way. Good. It's good <laughs> soul searching time. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So back to, uh, you know, the wife kind of giving the side eye about traveling all the time. So, you know, as in consulting, you get a lot of opportunities with clients. And so one of my clients with Chevron offered me uh, to come in and work for them, uh, implementing category management on a, on a global scale across the corporation, upstream, downstream, midstream. That's a, that's a big task. Big task, and it's one thing I've been doing as a consultant is 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 implementing category management. We had some great early wins, um, and so the whole corporation got on board with this is how we want to operate from a supply chain perspective. What kind of win would that be? What are we looking at there? Hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, per year. Big I mean, W. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's phenomenal, and I think that's was that just consolidating supply chains? Was that retooling things? How? Yeah. Can you give so us a brief on that. So you know, I guess. We saw the, the first step of, um, of the evolution going through sourcing process, which you had all these business units with uh, unaggregated spend. 
people. And so you, they started aggregating the spend, started being a little bit more sophisticated, how to negotiate these contracts, looking at the terms, uh, looking at the length of duration, and coming up with these sourcing you know, contracts. And you would see, you know, some significant returns come back. And, you know, oil companies are spending the majors billions of dollars a year. Yeah. And so you get 10% off of that. It's, it's big yeah. dollars, right? Um, and so what happened was you'd have these sourced agreements, which was great. And then they would be put in place and there was no contract <laughs> management on the back end of that. And so you got some pretty savvy suppliers that know how to exploit these things. Mm -hmm. And so they pretty quickly started eroding the value of these contracts put in place. You'd have some BUs that would not use the agreements. And so quickly we, the mindset got to be, we need to put something to backstop or to help it keep those benefits that we got from the sourcing agreements. And that was category management, which took a more holistic view. You started tracking the, you know, the market, you started looking at new entrants, you built some some expertise around you know fracking or drilling or operations mm -hmm. and so you know these guys were in in charge of being the liaison of the business units to what was happening in the market because it's very dynamic right the oil and gas very dynamic you have a lot of new players coming in and and you were you were looking at it on a global perspective is that right that's so you, right you not just you not only have different business units you have different geographies cultures uh, yeah supplier ba local supplier base global and supplier I base. think for a moment all of the stuff that's bought within these ma uh, you know, major operations. i mean how many number two pencils <laughs> <laughs> <right? laughs> we've mentioned a lot of pencils in that time period <laughs> a lot well of yeah pencils. i mean that's that's uh, uh that's a mountain of attack <clears throat> i i, I Amazing. I would, I would yeah. love to have been a fly on the wall there and fast forward. Yeah. And, and so during that time frame is we actually had a real need for, uh, you know, people that come in and support these high thoughts that we had around, w you know, what could be done. And so we started working with, uh, you know, schools to start developing supply chain as a as a focus and as a major. And so you saw like North Carolina come out, Arizona, Arizona State, Michigan yep. uh, State come out with these nascent you know, supply chain majors. And I think that's kind of where a lot of the foundation for it. So that, was that a push that you saw? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we couldn't find, we, you know, there were guys like me that weren't, you know, any good in business. And so you got put in <laughs> a procurement role. There you go. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. you you go. That. That's right. And, it. and so it's, it's, it was very complex, right? And so we need some MBA type skills, finance skills, being able to read income statements, balance sheets, yep. understand market trends and actually communicate those trends to business units who you know, probably liked having some independence and autonomy on who they selected for suppliers and you know, saying, hey, we're gonna consolidate this and build the case for that. And right. so it wasn't easy, a lot of uh, challenge along the way. Uh, Keith was part of these, these Yeah, things. so interestingly it, enough, I, I worked at Chevron early on as well in my career, in my supply chain career, uh, kind of early 2000s. And uh, Brian and I worked there at the same time, but we never ran into each other. I'm a massive organization, but that, right. that's in, in for me as well, right? I mean, because here's an organization with a massive amount of stroke in the market. You know, it's how do you do some better commercial deals? So you actually have some commercial savvy in the, in the engagement so that you can actually build more value into the contracts. And it, it, it's not as if the people that were there weren't actually capable, they, they were capable, mm. but there's only so many hours in the day, right? I mean, right. the people that were doing it uh, had historically been performing those exercises. You know, they were, you know, drilling engineers, completions engineers, you know, facilities engineers. They've got other technical issues that they're worried about. So having somebody who brought a commercial view uh, to, to help structure, you know, early on in the engagement during the sourcing process, and then ultimately manage those 
contracts on the backside, that was really where I think the bulk of the value was found, was just having other bodies that could help extract value through the money that we were spending. And yet, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, to, to your point earlier about, you know, just kind of the, your, uh, your career moments. I mean, that was just a great moment for me because, you know, Chevron Texaco were merging at a very rapid pace. I mean, when I joined, it was Chevron Texaco. And, you know, the first couple of years they dropped the Texaco side and here we are today. But it was, it was, there was a lot of very highly capable, I would argue, very highly capable commercial um, folks with, with good sound business savvy that were able to kind of bring that together and work with collaboratively, collaboratively with the business owners uh, to help drive more value for the dollars that were being spent. Yeah. And to your point, Keith, I think these supply chain professionals, I think one thing when you specialize is you start seeing some success, you start seeing how things could be in right. certain parts of the world. And then you're like, hey, this worked over here, why don't we do this? And so like, for example, doing, you know, if you're um, in the Marcellus and you've over-contracted for rigs, you know, I think the way that happened in the past is you would uh, try to negotiate, uh, you know, a settlement out of those rigs just for the Marcellus. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, you have a global business and a lot of times you have global rig companies. And so you start saying, holy crap, can I exchange committed days for the Marcellus into the Eagleford or into yep. Canada or into Indonesia. And so you, it kind of, you know, kind of expands your horizon on what's capable when you start seeing some of these deals that were have worked in the past. And so that's part of what you were saying about leveraging kind of your, your larger spend and relationships with suppliers and things like that and taking a 40,000 foot view of the situation as opposed to, like you said, the Marcellus or Barnett or whatever, and just right. looking at it, not just regionally, but countrywide and then globally and, and taking as far as you can. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And how, you know, kind of go back in time, right? How, how good were, uh, what level of proficiency was there for business units to potentially play together? I think that it, it really wasn't necessarily there, right? Yeah, I mean, look, we this is back when you had to pay for long distance phone calls, right? And, yeah, you know, video and conference it, calls yeah, really didn't exist. Was great. Uh, yep. You know, BUs that were, let's say, in Western Africa had a pretty good excuse not to participate. Not to participate. Uh, so, yep. some challenges there. And look, I mean, you know, category management is challenged to aggregate. You've got a lot of JV partnerships that you have. You have yep. a lot of country bidding requirements that will come. Like, so, plenty of hurdles that were there to, um, you know, that we had to figure out ways to optimize around these things but so how long were you at chevron doing that yeah so at chevron i was doing that for a couple of years and then um what was your title at chevron so was um my title was uh you have to remember transformation his, specialist his vintage is getting a little old so sometimes <laughs> it's a little bit fuzzy too my title was transformation specialist transformation specialist sounds yeah, my sounds i was sexy. the only guy yeah. in chevron with that title so that's very cool that's hr cool. was drop you know beat their heads like, against what do the you wall do here? yeah <laughs> what exactly do you how do you rate this guy especially transformation yeah. specialist. <laughs> So, uh, so we made some great progress uh, putting yep. in category management. Uh, and I think it was getting into the run phase, the manage phase, and an opportunity came up uh, down in Brazil to to be the head of supply chain in Brazil, which Chevron was doing an offshore project, just getting into Brazil there. Looked big like, ones. what's that? Probably a big ones eventually. Big too. ones, yeah. I mean, it's a big offshore project. Spent a lot of money down there, um, and um, I guess funny story about about this is. Uh, in between my first and second year of business school, I had uh, gotten married to my wife. And while most of my my classmates were doing internships, uh, I talked my wife into going down to Brazil and studying Portuguese 
for the summer. And she thought that was a fantastic idea until we got there and it's actually studying you know, Portuguese five hours a day with a tutor. It's not easy. Right. And after about a week, she finally realizes that there's only like three countries in the world that speak Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh, now tell me again why we're doing this. I'm like, hey, it's an evolving country. You never know when you get the opportunity to, you know. It's kind of like Spanish. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're kind, kind, of. Of. <laughs> kind of. Well, she didn't quite buy it, but so fast forward, uh, Seven years later, this opportunity came up with, with Chevron in Brazil. And because I we'd lived in Brazil and I spoke some Portuguese, that was definitely a plus on the resume. <laughs> and you so, like, see? Yeah, this, <laughs> this is, is like, all part of the plan. Exactly. This yeah. is how good you are in supply chain. <laughs> uh, thing, for, that was for tr genuine personal forecasting. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly what's coming down That's the pipe. Right. So, uh, yeah, so, and then also with the international background, uh, and I'm just back to underpin, life experiences go a long ways in a, in a profession. So if you have these opportunities to, to really take a different path, you've got plenty of time to undo those bad decisions, but likely it's going to lead on to some opportunities later on. But uh, so anyways, landed in Brazil, was head of supply chain. We had no upstream presence there, so we had to build an organization. Uh, we, there was local content requirements. We had to build vessels down in Brazil, which the shipping industry was pretty nascent at the time. So that's gotta be a huge challenge, right? I mean, I, I first season we had a guy on named Alan who he had to go do this a similar thing in the Middle East. They have no baseline infrastructure, for, right? You know, they, they can't get welders, right? So I assume you'd have to start a similar ground floor there and, and not to, you know, not to dog on Brazil, but any country you go yeah. into for the first time, right? Yeah. When you're starting anything up from scratch, you better better be ready for the ride. Yeah, and I would say probably uninformed optimism is a really strong trait to have at that point. <laughs> Blind optimism is <laughs> yeah, how yeah, I approach exactly. everything. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Not, no problem. It's going to be – what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, it couldn't be that big of a deal. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, starting from a shore base, bringing helicopters, uh, you know, building vessels down there, hiring local staff. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, some massive challenges. I mean, but also, I mean, what a training ground for <laughs> – for you know a supply chain professional and yeah. you know i would say you know my advice is that you're always training for the next job and so take on responsibilities that you may actually fail in your current job because you're really just continuing your education for future future jobs that may come down the road and so this way i viewed view this with a bit of uninformed optimism but also you know chevron has a great it's fantastic for developing leaders there, and I've got lots of positive things about Chevron. Absolutely. During this, you know, during this process, they probably saw some rough edges. They sent me to Charm School, the Charm School, Charm <laughs> School, and Charm School is really where you get a chance to spend uh, some time with Chevron executives at the time to really understand how they deal with some of the challenges that you're facing. Uh, you get it's a real thing called Charm School? Well, informally called Charm School. I think yeah. they have some other <laughs> name for yeah, it. I'm but sure they've been renamed two or three times. But it's like there. a professional development thing? Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. um, yeah, it's a very unique program where you, s you spend a week with some of your, you know, maybe 20 of your peers from other business units, um, and you get to interact with CFO, CEO, okay. uh, head of downstream. Yep. So it. really fantastic. And, you know, it's amazing. These guys give other time to develop people in the organization that at the time I thought I was doing pretty well, but I mean, so far down the organization that, <laughs> right. and actually at dinner one night, I was talking with the CEO and he was talking about the importance of, of, of work-life balance. And I'm like, okay, I don't mean to, to weigh in on this, but every place I go and I was traveling, you know, on a global basis, but every place I've been, you either had just been there or you're going there in a couple of weeks. And so, and then right. you're doing this kind of stuff where you're spending the evening yeah. with, with guys, you know, mid-career type stuff. 
And so he said, well, you know, admittedly, I, I get paid not to have a work-life balance. Fair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> That's the balance. Yeah, exactly. So that, that is happens. the balance. Sometimes that happens. <laughs> yeah, so, economics balance. Yeah, a boat really levels things out. <laughs> right. Yacht. <laughs> yeah, so then, you know, also in a time period, I, I got a chance to have my really first operations um, role and to have what I call big boy toys, which are helicopters, vessels, and safety becomes very real. Uh, in those roles, which is very important. If you're in supply chain, to understand the importance of safety. When you, you know, I mean, we had discussion about, you know, buying caskets and bringing those into Brazil in case something were to happen. Oh, wow. And that's really when, you know, the reality hits hits the fan about, you know, if you don't run a very safe operations, make the right decision every time, bad things could happen really fast. Right. And so when you're dealing with, with, with boats and uh, car, and even, you know, in, in countries where, you know, I mean, you have expats there with families, you know, make sure that those those people are safe, et cetera. It's a real thing. I, you know, safety, I feel like people get bored and complacent. You, you know, yes, let's check the safety box, but right. I'm fortunate enough that I'm, my, I'm in the steel world. So I walk around steel mills fairly often and, and you never feel more mortal than walking when you're right. the softest thing in, <laughs> in an operation, right? Where everything out there wouldn't even slow down <laughs> if it killed you, right? Yeah. So it it is, you know, it's, it's yes, it's a box to check, but I, again, I'm fortunate that I encounter this stuff and it reminds me that, oh, this is a real risk, right? It is good to continually talk about safety. So that's, it's a real thing. Well, and I think that's, you know, not to digress too far, but I think that that's where a number of organizations go sideways is they create a check the box, uh, right. you know, academic, academic exercise around safety rather than having real conversations around why safety matters, right? Mm-hmm. What are we doing to do right by our employees and our team members? Because the last thing you want to do is have to use one of those caskets. And call a you, family. Last thing right. you want to do is have to, yeah, I don't even want to have to call 911 for God's sake, right? I mean, right. let's make sure that the, I, I think as leaders within the industry, whether it's upstream, downstream, you know, service industry, any, I mean, any, any part of the industry or any company for that matter, keeping safety not only top of mind but knowing that we're doing it for the right reasons changes it for real right and that's yeah. and and i imagine you know chevron was a safety leader when i was there and when we were mm-hmm. there um i i suspect they continue to be safety leaders um they do, they do a great job and they did a great job in particular about making it very real and that's one thing i really appreciated about my time when we were there yeah and you know i think as you go up in the organization, you sometimes lose sight of your role in reinforcing safety amongst your staff. Right. And, and and one great example I have about my boss there was, you know, he knew I was new at, at running these vessels. And he gave me the staff to help do that. But he would ask me all the time. He's like, what's the name of the captain for this offshore vessel? And at the time, I was so busy. I'm like, and finally, after about the third and I wouldn't know. And after about the third time, he would ask me this question. I'm like... Listen, Daniel, I'm I'm so busy doing you know all these other things, setting up contracts for offshore rigs, for PS you know PSVs, for FPSO, all these things coming in. You know I don't, you know I, I don't know who the captain is. He goes, well, Brian, you when you start knowing the names of the captains is when I know you're starting to have the safety conversations with those captains about mm-hmm. your personal expectations right. on on their operations on behalf of Chevron. Right. And that was a time when it really hit home that, yeah, it's safety is a personal thing. It's your interactions. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's not, you know, having a checkbox at JSA. Like, that's not what drives safety. It's those personal expectations. Right. 
So, uh, I mean, you know, once again, a great foundational building for, for future supply chain rules. So you knocked it out of the park in Brazil. Everything's great. Things are great. You're uh, a transformation specialist. Transformation specialist. Yeah. We had a new title the only one. HR, <laughs> HR could finally, their head finally came back together after exploding. There's probably a Harvard business case about having Yeah, we need to change that. We need like to that. pay him more, so <laughs> yeah. give him exactly. a real title. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so uh, so was down there. I was quite, I was very happy, had long-term expectations, spent some more time down there. Mm. I loved the role, loved the leadership team, loved stuff we were doing. Uh, but I had a company from, from Calgary that looked me up and and inv invited me to come and, and join those guys. And so I had a, a person call me and uh, I was literally sitting on a beach in Ipanema in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> and he called me up and said, hey, I got this interesting opportunity for you up in, up in Canada. And he mentioned the name of the company, which was Talisman Energy. And to be honest with you, I, I'd done a lot of consulting, had a lot of contacts in the industry, hadn't heard of Talisman Energy before. And so I'm like, I'm literally sitting in on a beach in Rio de Janeiro, and you want me to move to an Calgary. unknown <laughs> energy company it very in cold. Calgary? Like, <laughs> it sounds very small. The answer's not just no. Cold. It's hell no. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> no, I'm sticking around. Well, they had a, a new CEO that that was there at the time. His name John John Manzoni, uh, who was a very inspirational guy, and trying to bring in you know, take Talisman <coughs> to folks on the shale plays, do a lot of cool stuff. And so was building some some great uh, talent up in this company. And so eventually they they lured me to, to make the move. And, uh, you know, I don't recommend this, but I moved from Rio to uh, to Calgary in November. Oh. And so as we're moving into summertime Stepping in Rio, off that plane we're moving into the Southern Alberta winter, winter <laughs> in November. And I think we had a snowstorm like the first weekend we're Naturally, there. Yeah. And my wife's looking at me like, yeah. what, are what are we doing? What are we do job, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you know, not your, your ability to choose locations. Nice decision. Not making. very capable. Yeah. yeah. Not very good. <laughs> Low capability. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, actually, I got some good advice when I was leaving brazil going into canada um by a very seasoned guy was he's like you know brian you're going to go to, to alberta people are going to look like you they're going to talk like you they're going you're going to see mcdonald's you know they have the same general accents and you're going to feel like you're back in the states and he says and that will be the exact moment you've gone very wrong <laughs> because the culture it's a canadian culture like it's so different than the way the U.S. Uh, views business, the way they view personal relationships, the way they view so the many different operate. aspects. Yeah, he says. So don't forget, just because they look like you, they talk like you, that you're not in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in a place like Brazil, when you're in Angola, I mean, hits you in the face every day. It's yeah. visual, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And so you kind of gear up for that on the day they ride to work. Canadians are sneaky, though. Yeah, they blend in. When they say sorry Very a lot. They, yeah, <laughs> they, they apologize pretty yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they meet it or not is still up for yeah. debate. So Keith, as our resident Canadian, you can yeah. give some, hey, I'm, shed I'm, some light Again, on I'm sneaky. Yeah, I can't tell he you. He infiltrated can't tell you secrets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one thing I learned there is uh, in Canada, the, the value of personal relationships and having done business with people in the past, right. way more important in Canada than I had seen at that time in other parts, especially in our US businesses. That, uh, you know, if you've done a good work in the past, um, you know, the loyalty that that even big OFS companies would have towards small operators was tremendous. I mean, they would drop you, even though you spent a ton of money, they would drop you if you had no connection with them mm. to service one of their smaller clients um, yeah. because of that in the past. So you're up in Calgary, you were a talisman. 
Um, how, how long does that go on? What, do you, what happens there? What's the story with uh, Calgary? Yeah, so I'm in Calgary for a couple of years. Uh, we're, we're leading this transformation, uh, which, which is uh, a, cha- a challenging one, kind of going from, once again, from a tactical procurement organization to a strategic one, which was pretty common at the time for you know, organizations to go through. So I, I landed there actually with a pretty solid playbook on how to do that. Um, in fact, my boss at the time, when I landed there, I'm like, okay, you know, what do you want me to do? What's the priorities? He's like, I don't know. You're the expert. <laughs> Hard you, better. You, do this. You, you tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, let's go. And that was the, exactly the direction he gave me. Don't screw <clears> this up kind of <throat> a right. thing, right? But, but you're the expert. Okay, so he pulled the, you know, start doing strategic sourcing, start, you know, negotiating, finding the, the easy wins, you know, getting good people in the right spots, you know, um, focusing on people. And, you know, one of my management mantras is, you know, hire good, sleep well. You know, if, if you can hire good people and the right people in the right spots, um, you can overcome whatever challenges, unforeseen challenges, f- seen challenges. You know, if you have a motivated, capable group, you're gonna be able to accomplish some pretty amazing things and they're gonna make you look good in, in the process. And I think that's one thing we focused on was bringing really good talent in, into Talisman and, agree. and uh, built a really great supply chain organization. Having said that though, I, I gotta warn you people about as you're going through <laughs> these things, be a bit cautious who you're getting feedback from along the way. And um, I was about a year into this transformation and we were doing 360 feedbacks um, and 360 feedbacks are where you, you do a formal survey, your boss fills in uh, you know, questionnaire, your peers mm-hmm. fill in some questionnaire, and your direct employees fill in some questionnaire. So Keith was actually mm-hmm. part of filling in this questionnaire. So, But I gotta say, I got blasted uh, <laughs> from a number of angles. Like, uh, you know, some of my peers, you know, said what this guy's doing is, you know, not aligned with uh, who we are as a company. I had employees say I'm the worst manager ever, like ever, ever. And, uh, you know, it's actually quite a humbling experience to get the feedback because you take this stuff seriously, you want to take some action. And I've got to go back to my employees, to my boss and say, look, this is how I was rated. Here's my plan on how I'm going to go forward. Fire Keith. Yeah, so I had to <laughs> it was easy. Find Clean out some brush. Start with your token Canadian. You know, take you all go? these people out. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, and so I went to my boss, who actually had rated me quite well, and he said, "Keep going. You know, you're doing the right things. We're we're changing the culture. We're changing the way supply chain is viewed. We're, we're doing. You know, keep going. Doing good stuff. Change hurts. Yep. Yeah. Be a be a change agent. Be a transformation specialist. You know. I mean, keep you down that path. And so I would say that if I would have um, really internalized 80% of the feedback here, I would have I would have gone back and probably not addressed the hard things. I would have taken the easy things, gone after office supplies, yeah. gone after, yeah. I don't know what the easy ones would be, but uh, you know, do some general aggregation, but really to do the transformation that was required really was a bit painful. I mean, you gotta rip out some pieces, you know, move things around. So, uh, and, and it's hard, right? Because during that process, we're trying to change people or we were forced to change people. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, generalization is that people, not, not just Canadians, people don't want to change. And especially for an organization that's been around for a you know, hundred years, like Talisman had, there was, there was not a lot of driver to want to change. The, a lot of, a lot of folks, you know, they just hadn't really formally wrapped their head around it. And so, you know, and then back to your cultural comment earlier, um, I think 
the, the U.S. mantras, you know, we change pretty quickly mm -hmm. around here, right? I mean, it's a lot of change or die has become the mantra within business in, in the U.S. for the last 30 years, you know, Jack Welsh. That being said, I don't know that Canada was necessarily there. Uh, certainly, I think it's gotten there. But at the time, it was it was pretty radical, and it was it, it was disruptive. But it was for all the right reasons. And so, you know, candidly, I think the net result was was what it needed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we're up in Calgary, enjoying some great ski seasons. The duck hunting is freaking amazing up there. Some the Bow River has got some amazing trout fishing. So that's all good stuff. But uh, at that time, we actually had a hard time getting the right people in the right right spots. And so. Um, you know, we had some discussions. We were trying to bring in people who had global experience. It was a global operations uh, that we were trying to staff for. And so we actually relocated the group back down to Houston uh, just to get access to, to international, uh, you know, supply chain talent. Yeah. And so uh, we made a move back here. Um, and so operating uh, down here in the U.S. And so, uh, yeah, I think that was an important move. And I think sometimes you have to make those, those decisions. So you're back in Houston now. Back in Houston. By the way, when covering I, the entire Western Hemisphere at this point. Yeah. By the way, when I was uh, early in my career, I was traveling to Houston a lot, and I said I get off the plane in August, and it just feels like a heater. When you walk <laughs> off that yeah. that jetway, it feels like someone actually turned the heater on. Yep. And I always said I'm never moving to Houston. Like this, just mm. too hot in the summertime. And so <laughs> say it every morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, this is now my third time living in Houston, coming back to Houston. So uh, you know, all good things go through Houston, and we've yeah. actually. Everybody hearing this, this is peak pain for anybody living in Houston uh, right now. We're, we're at day, I don't know, 98 of 100 degrees or something like that. Wow, but, yeah. Terrible. Let's not talk about it. I'm sorry no. we get depressed again. Yeah, but right. I mean, so many great things in Houston. Love too, Houston. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, talk to us in January, and yeah. we're going to have a different, <laughs> right. different or lunchtime. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, back in uh, back in Houston, um, in that time frame, uh, I was asked to take over the global supply chain for, for Talisman Energy. And we're doing a lot of cool stuff uh, over in, out on, uh, in Asia. In, in Africa, exploration was quite active. Uh, so able to leverage stuff we've done in, in, around the world. And so, uh, great. Um, we had a couple things go sideways, probably gas prices weren't helping us out, uh, a few other things. And so the company was up for sale and we got bought by a Spanish oil and gas company, Repsol. Yep. Uh, which I think was a good move for all parties involved in that, um, but brought on some new challenges. I mean, it's. Um, you know the way the 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 Europeans look at at the oil and gas business is probably different than the way that that we do in North America. Um, through the process that you know I was selected to be the uh, the CPO for for up the upstream for oil and gas. Uh, so uh, once again, challenge you know global you know global business. At this point, it's old hat. Spin. Right? It's you, old you're hat. Yawning. It should be it should be easy, but <laughs> it seems like it only gets harder. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, the energy the required keeps going up, though. <laughs> right. The more the more people you have in the playbook, the harder it gets. And the supply keeps going down. Oh, dude. Yeah. yeah. Not kidding. Um, so at the time, I was living in Houston, but traveling to Madrid, you know, at least two, you know, two times a month. So um, that's a big I'm, trip. Yeah. Yeah. Doing this, you know, sometimes three, four times a month, to be honest with you. And uh, so I'm um, once again back to the travel being unsustainable. So I relocate to Madrid, um, and and that was a good move. Build the connections within the company. Wow. Um, and so was in Madrid for a couple of years, um, and you know we were making some some great progress, you know, professionalizing supply chain, bringing some things like negotiations, which um, you know we spent time talking about the importance of negotiations and supply chains role in that. But I'd say that's the the one skill that 
probably the function really needs to bring in into play. But uh, you know, bring training people on negotiations, and so was there making great progress. Um, it's tough being international, and I had some family challenges uh, with some aging parents back home, so really needed to come back to the U.S. and so made the decision to uh, to leave Repsol time and come back and start up my own consulting firm at the time. But not an easy decision, but one of those things that as you go through your career, you have to make those decisions along the way. So is that more or less bring us to today? You're That's where we are today. Do you want to you want to plug the consulting business real quick? Yeah. So uh, I founded a company called called NextPro Consulting, and so uh, focus on a lot of supply chain challenges uh, around transformations, merger strategies. Uh, you know, getting the most out of your supply chain practices, uh, whether it be sourcing, category management, looking at org structures, and so uh, focus on mostly the oil and the gas. Uh, business. So how long how long is have you been running this consulting show? for about two and a half years? Two and a half years. So yep. you've it's been a busy two and a half years, I think. Yeah, you've probably seen a little bit change, right? right? Well, it's a crazy dynamic market, that's for sure. I mean, two and a half years ago, well, I mean that was the beginning of twenty twenty. Right, it just as COVID everything was, was yep. gravy. Right, oh, yeah. we, were, we were all looking for record twenty twenty. Yep. Sky falls down. Yeah you know oil goes negative now we're back up Ugh. to whatever i mean and and covid i think it's um you supply know, chain's getting knocked <laughs> right yeah I, th I think there's the, there's the oil and gas prices but i think covid also put some challenges in in the way as far as being able to travel uh, yeah. there was a lot of work that was going on in the middle east other places that um we were looking at and uh just couldn't travel and uh, i think that just really caused things to slow down quite a bit so i, I guess it, how do we distill the last not just your career, but you know the last few years into, you know, I would love for you to pepper some wisdom in the room here to like, what have you seen change? What have been some biggest takeaways? Any interesting stories to kind of close it out with a bang? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, um, the interesting path we've been on in, in the oil and gas, and I think a lot of the audience here is, you know, manufacturing oil and gas is, um, we see this kind of progression of, of the value that supply chain brings in. I think it was a bit hidden, except for professionals. Most people didn't talk about supply chain, wasn't talked about in the boardrooms. And I think just when you start hitting shortages and you start having you know, real impact on, um, on, a, on, a, on revenue and on P&L, is all of a sudden you know, supply chain has come into focus. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's been it's been this uh, th this route uh, where it's become more open, but I think it's we've gone through this evolution of professionalizing. I think as a professional, we're, we should be well prepared for this for this time frame. We've developed great people, great tool sets. We have these playbooks that we've seen work in down times, in good times, and so. Uh, but you know, I, I would say the last couple of years have been challenged for for the business for the function. I think we've actually gone backwards a little bit in capabilities. Um, I think it's. Uh, what, why is that? Yeah, why, do you, why, do you think that. It, why do you think it's yeah. stepped back? Yeah, I think that. Um, I'm not questioning that it has, but what, yeah. what specifically you think drove it? Yeah, I, I think that we had some great strides looking at supplier collaboration, which is the next evolution from kind of the sourcing, you know, co you know, consolidating spend to category management, looking at more holistic metrics, to actually integrating in with suppliers on business plans getting CEO to CEO agreements on how you would operate and share resources, et cetera. Um, we, we went from that to all of a sudden, everyone's kind of fighting to stay alive. Uh, you've got to find a way to cut out 30, 40, 50% out of your expenses. And so pretty soon these collaborative uh, agreements went out the, out the window. Right. It was first cost savings. How can you save on a 
not necessarily overall rig cost. It was how do you save on day rates, right? Right. How do you cut, you know cut those back? And so we've gotten into very tactical discussions again versus you know longer term strategic discussions, and we lost some capabilities. We stopped investing in people across industry. I yeah. mean, uh, with, with the big headcount reductions, lost a lot of good people. I mean, whether they're folks kind of nearing retirement and or folks that just gave up on oil and gas and went elsewhere, I think, too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think that's why we've retrenched a bit, I would say, is that, um, you know, the focus has been on first call savings the last couple of years. I think now, as we're seeing, we're coming out of this, uh, resources are tight. The question is being asked again, how do we get more out of our supply chain? Right. We have to collaborate with, with companies in order to get what we need to. We don't impact operations. Um, and so that conversation is coming back into play, but I f feel in the last couple of years, we de have definitely retrenched. As I talk to other companies, um, you know, the things that they're working on around these strategic things have completely fallen off the radar, like training, uh, the focus areas, category management, Probably if we did a survey around companies that were really progressing on category management, the, 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 you know, the mandate for the groups have gone back to first cost savings. Just negotiate deals. Negotiate deals. If you're not currently negotiating a deal, I don't want to hear about it. it. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. You got to be seeing a lot of that on your side too, right? Yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, you know, specifically when I joined Patterson UTI, my mantra was to start building it up and we did. Yeah, but certainly, you know, as with everybody else, as activity fell, we had to scale back. Um, but we did, especially in the major businesses, you know, really keep a hard focus on managing our suppliers, managing, you know, engaging. But that, that being said, th there is a lot of how do you stay alive? How do you fight for today? Um, and that I think that was a lot of 2020, 2021. You know, my, my 2022 has been such a wild ramp. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And that's one thing I was going to ask Brian. Um, you know, so you talked a little bit about the challenges and the and the, the regression, slight regression. What are the biggest opportunities that you see kind of going forward, right? What what as supply chain professionals, whether it's upstream, downstream, service companies, what have you, you know, what are the things that if you're a you know, early career supply chain professional, you think, you know, these are the real areas that I think whether it's technology, whether it's processes, whether it's training, what have you, what is it that people should be focusing on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the biggest advice I'd give to supply chain professionals, and this is something I've learned over my career, is understanding your role at the table. And step back and think about it a little bit is, uh, you know, we certainly want supply chain professionals to know the business. They want them to know, you know, the life of a driller. I want them right. to know what's like in the field. Um, it's important. However, what I find is that you have uh, a number of people who want to become kind of weekend or armchair drillers or operators and they want to weigh in on technical advice and things like this. And what it's important to understand your role at the table because your job as a supply chain professional is to bring in, you know, procurement skills. And what I mean procurement skills is know how the procurement process works from requisition to how a supplier gets paid. Know those pain points. Know how to leverage technology. You know, know how inventory management works and how a company can squeeze out value out of inventory management, you know, like what's the minimum amount of inventory you can do? How can you, uh, you know, minimize the, the cost of a company to hold inventory to secure supply? Um, you know, know how logistics operates, like be the be the expert around these things at the table and bring those things into play at the table when you meet with your stakeholders. 
And then you bring in what that's kind of the on the tactical side, and then you bring in the more the strategic side, which mm -hmm. is negotiations. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've met uh, guys, you know, let's say you know drillers as an example, who says, you know, hey, I can negotiate a contract just as good as the supply chain guy you gave me to negotiate. And to be honest with you, sometimes that's been the case because you know the supply chain forgot about what the role with the table was right. to bring in the best practice around negotiation. I mean, there's so many. Negotiation is such a deep area, you know, there, there, you know, we've done a lot of studies and like just a couple of nuggets that we get from that is, and you know, now that Keith is president of, of a company is, we actually get our best deals, our best benefits when we bring in C-level negotiators into the process. If you negotiate straight with a sales guy or with a business unit level person, these guys know the business, they know how the deal is structured. But we found out if you can bring in a CEO, CFO, these guys are very busy guys. Oftentimes they're not as prepared for the negotiations as they need to be. Uh, they wanna show that uh, you know, they can you know, make a deal. Uh, they don't have anybody to, that they can defer to. And so if you can get them at the right time in the negotiations, you can actually get some great wins by getting these guys, you know, at the table at the right time, and so and furthermore, they're invested in the deal at that point too. Yeah, right? they're there, right? right? I mean, they want to show they can get a deal done and move on to the next yeah. thing, you know. And so uh, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah, bring the big boy in. It's yeah. a great insight, and most people shy away from this, right? But yeah. as as a supply chain professional, knowing these things about negotiations, right? Uh, knowing like in a multi round negotiations, you get the best benefits between the second and third round of negotiations. But if you always go through three rounds of negotiations. Yeah. Everyone knows that until they'll sandbag and you stop seeing the zero. So sometimes you got to cut off at the first round and yep. say, "Okay, all bids are final. Let's go." Yep. And so you know, bring so bringing that skill set, uh, the commercial skill set, um, into the table. I think you know, knowing your role at the table is super important, and uh, you know, encourage you be, to become excellent at your craft and and make sure you bring that to the table um, as a supply chain professional. Well, that was that was. Hell of an inning. Nice, nice close. Yeah. I like All it. Right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, to go to the negotiating table right now. Let's, let's call <laughs> some CEOs. Right. So. Well, um, that that was – thank you for that journey, Brian. Um, thanks for coming. I, I don't have any more questions. Keith, if anything uh, left I mean, on the table there? No, the, the only other thing I was going to suggest is, yeah, I know you've got a couple of, uh, of, of scenarios we talked about, yeah, and I don't know how we work this into the conversation, but we can do it you know, in, in an editing process. But if there are one or two anecdotes that you want to walk us through just so we've got some additional yeah. content, why not? I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of the cool things that Brian has seen through, through his experience, through his career has been a multitude of deals. And that's, you know, when I think of supply chain personally, I think of commercial acumen, really, whether it's you know, how do you structure deals, how you uh, make sure you have the right outs, how you, you know, make sure you have the right teeth, how you make sure that, um, you know, that you know, how you build those commercial models is where you can strip benefit for your organization. And Brian's got, I mean, a litany of examples there. So it, it would probably be worthwhile for you to run through one or two that you feel comfortable sharing, if you feel comfortable sharing. Like I said, just for some additional content. I'm never going to close off a tap of wisdom. Well, <laughs> in <laughs> the beauty of it is that, you know, these are... I, Look, we, we, we all spend time in academia, right? I mean, I wasn't a supply chain professional either. I came up, you know, finance, economics, MBA, um, but ult and ultimately fell into supply chain. And, and then through, through the Chevron um, you know, continuing edu education process, I learned a lot of academia, 
but it's just that, right? Mm. It's how do you then take what you learn in academia, thread it up with the real world and practice, and, and really where's that, where's that confluence? And Brian's got a couple of really cool examples of that that I think would probably be beneficial. Yeah, sure. I, I think um, you know one thing I'm passionate about is around supplier collaboration, and I think that starts with you know CEO to CEO conversations is where uh, you know, that needs to go a lot of times. And a great example I'll give is uh, you know back when we were expanding out into the Marcellus, we were fracking there, and and there were some established players there. Mm -hmm. um, rates were incredibly high, and you know we were doing our should cost models, which we understood how much every aspect of the operations cost between sand, fuel, manpower, you know all this stuff, and it kept showing that the um, the suppliers were making an obscene amount of money off of us, which. Okay, so we kept going out using the standard tools, RFP, a squad for RFP, RFP, you know, pr proposal. And the price kept coming back, inflated. And so we said, okay, we can't keep using these, these tools, these standard procurement tools, even though it's a bit more strategic, trying to invite more suppliers. We have to change the game a bit. And so we had a great supplier we had up in, uh, in Canada, which is TriCan, um, which uh, they were not in the Marcellus. And so... Um, we set up a CEO to CEO conversation with um, with Trican about saying, okay, what could we do about getting you guys to go and set up shop in the Marcellus? Wow. And so uh, he was uh, very excited about you know it's great, we'll expand the business. And then we're like, okay, it comes with a with an ask though, is that we need to see a per stage cost in this frame in this range, and it was very aggressive range, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, the CEO of Trican at the time, you know, kind of took a deep breath and said, oh, I need it's a bit more aggressive than I thought. I'll get back to you on that. So a few days later, he came back and said, you know what, we've talked to the board and we will take you up on it. And we, you know, it's at the high end of that range. So I think he ended up being okay. But, you know, he <clears> said, listen, we'll step our base of business in the Marcellus and then we'll expand our services there and, yeah. you know, we'll help offset the, the kind of investment we're making into this. Um, and it turned out to be a great relationship because yep. we started having the CEO conversation about performance. It's not easy to start up in a new country, new location. There were some some hiccups, but when you have CEO to CEO commitment, you know the trust factor goes up. You start seeing some mistakes, maybe not as uh, they are bad operator, but or a bad, bad supplier. But you know, hey, we need to improve this because we're right. jointly investing this. And so we actually got up to I think three full-time frat crews in the mm -hmm. Marcellus with uh, with Trican, and they were our best supplier. So much so when we started up our operations in Eagleford, we had the same conversation. Yep. And once again, they met the challenge, and so we had this North America fracking agreement right. that was um, true collabor collaboration. True yeah. collaboration, and uh, you know I think that both parties, you know, it was uh, it was great for us to open yep. up the operations, and so in a and you, you share those stories about, you know, that worked. And so you say, okay, how can I apply that model in other areas? Right. Whether it be in Asia, whether it be in South America, where can I start those CEO to CEO conversations and use these types of stories as starter material yep. to get people thinking about it. And I guess going back to my interaction with the guys on a beach in Indonesia about, you know, I had no idea that was even possible until these guys, you know, I heard the stories. And then you start saying, oh, wow, you know, we could do that. And so I think, you know, our role is to tell those stories, be a good storytellers about things that you've seen in the past around 
good innovative deals what's possible well, and, and it's also ditching the ditching the playbook when the playbook's not achieving the results that you need right yeah. i mean at some point Very in time true. you got to think differently um you know, look at look at a problem. And say if we keep approaching it in the same way, we should expect expect the same results. Yeah, learn when to cut bait. Right, right. exactly. And so, you, 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 sooner or later, you just got to turn around and say, "This isn't working, man. Let's let's try something different." And and I think that that's from a supply chain broader supply chain perspective. I think that's a lot of what we need to do right now, um, whether it's toilet paper, you know, oil fill services or otherwise. Yet that expecting things to go back to the way that they were is a fallacy. We need yeah. to look at the problem set differently than we have. And only when we start doing that will we achieve results that'll be fundamentally different than what they were. Absolutely. I know a good consulting company that can help with that. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> so do I. Any emerging technologies or, or data sets or anything in particular that you say, you know what, from a supply chain perspective, keep your eye out on this? I think, you know, we're just moving towards uh, real-time data. I think that the, the digitalization of everything uh, in supply chain is really bringing up some interesting things. Blockchain, you know, how do we use this? And, you know, there's some interesting case studies for that, I think around, you know, seismic data for using blockchain for that. We've done some some test cases around that. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the next phase is gonna be just around information and being able to mine information and make good decisions based off this right. mass information coming and how do you build in some, some technology that can uh, take some shortcuts on on, uh, on utilizing the data. So I think that's the next exi exciting thing is uh, not just aggregating the data, but actually making faster decisions, better decisions uh, on the data. Yep. And not just you know independently, but there's just so much data across the industry that I think if we work together as an industry, we're gonna right. go much further than if you operate in silos. So you know I can't stress enough the collaboration between suppliers, but also I'll put a plug in for building connections across the industry as well. I think a lot of times we have very busy jobs uh, it's hard to build these purposeful connections. Um, and, uh, you know, when I came back, actually came back to the United States, I found that I had some great connections across the majors, but not good connections with, uh, you know, CPOs at mid-sized oil and gas companies. And so actually a buddy of mine, uh, Mark Hood, who was at the time the, the head of supply chain for, uh, for Apache, we said, hey, let's have this forum, the CPO forum, where we're going to get like-minded people from from mid-sized oil and gas companies to get together on a regular basis, and just talk about what are some of the challenges we're facing. You know, that are non, uh, I guess, that don't break any rules around sharing information, but just putting those connections because you never know when you have to offload a rig, when you have to, mm -hmm. you know, um, there's just lots of things that you you get when you build these connections. And so we started up this, this, the CPO uh, roundtable uh, with you know, s similar sized companies. And you know, after doing this a couple times, everyone in that group said, you know what, this is the one meeting I won't miss. Like right. you just get so much value out of just sharing things. You know, how do you manage millennials as an example? Like, you know, <laughs> the, you know, how do you deal with transportation issues, with trucking challenges? I mean, these are all things that were, were coming up. And you build these connections. And so when you need to pick up the phone call, and have a discussion with a company about you're in the same field or how can you mm -hmm. cut out expenses you have those guys you know already that that's already built right the and so uh, in place already yeah take the time you know carve out time to build relationships uh both within the industry and also look for chances to build outside your industry in a similar function 
and uh, you know those things pay off. It's hard because I mean, even just Keith and I trying to schedule a time to talk to do about this. this. Holy crap! Is is you know it's hard to <laughs> to book a time just for a conversation without an end goal because you're like, well, I could use that hour to do right. something I actually need. So to imagine if we were important. <laughs> I mean, then, then all of a sudden, holy cow, we'd really struggle but, you to know, find that's, time. That's one of the reasons we did this was obviously to, you know, to meet interesting people, but you never know what's going to come out of a conversation, right. even if it's only for an hour. Kind of comes all the way full circle, right? Unintended uh, introductions and conversations. I mean, if it wasn't for today, the two of y'all may never have met. If, if it wasn't for a random beach encounter in Indonesia, this would never have happened. Right, right. Exactly. I'd be still uh, getting burns in a lab someplace. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, we, we'd love to to have you back on at some point again. If you want to yeah, plug us in your roundtable, we'll have somebody else too. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Frank absolutely. and Keith. I really appreciate it. You're the a good time. All right. Cheers. Thank you. If you have any questions, nominations, or suggestions, please reach out to us on the Highly Capable Podcast on LinkedIn or at podcast at gaultwayindustries.com. Thank you for listening.